Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast with Dr. Brett Schur. Today, I'm joined by Amy Berger. Now, you may know Amy Berger from either her blog or her YouTube channel. She puts out a ton of information at toitnutrition.com. She's also very active on Twitter at Tuit Nutrition. Now, Amy has a master's in human nutrition, and she's a certified nutrition specialist. And she came to low-carb on her own first and then became certified in nutrition. And she has a wonderful way of explaining things and ways to make it easy and ways to make it that we can all understand. Her her YouTube series is Keto Without the Crazy. And I think that really summarizes a lot of her message that we don't have to get so caught up in things. We can make this uh, more simple and still be effective. She also wrote the Alzheimer's Antidote, uh, talking about uh, Alzheimer's as sort of type 3 diabetes, as a glucose and insulin issue that can be addressed with low carb. So we talk about that. We talk about weight loss. We talk about a lot of the psychological sides of things because it's not just about what you eat. It's also about who you are, how you approach this, what your mindset is, what your background is, and we have to factor those in. And I really appreciate Amy's attention to this. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Amy Berger. Please check us out on dietdoctor.com to see the whole transcripts, all our other podcasts, and of course, all the other information with the guides and the um, recipes. And there's a wealth of information on dietdoctor.com. Enjoy this episode with Amy Berger. Amy Berger, thanks so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, for people who are sort of new, I guess, to the low-carb space, maybe they don't know you, but you have quite a presence, first with your book, um, The Alzheimer's Antidote, then with your blog at toitnutrition.com, and now with your very popular and very entertaining YouTube channel. So you have been quite prolific in this field, but you're no stranger to it. You're no newbie to it. You started in the low-carb journey over 15 years ago, it sounds like. So tell us a little bit about what got you involved in low carb right well like uh, like so many people i came into low carb because i was heavier and i wanted to lose weight and i had kind of been on the heavy side my whole life i wasn't you know obese but i was heavy and i was especially heavy compared to the amount of exercise i was doing and what i thought was following a healthy diet right. you know i've actually completed two marathons and you know i was dutifully eating my whole grain bread with my light margarine and putting skim milk on my whole grain cereal and no matter how hard i worked no matter how many hours i exercised the weight would not budge and i'm fortunate in that i didn't have any major health issues well that i knew of anyway all i really had was some excess weight um but there's, you know, I have a family history of type 2 diabetes, uh, cancer, stroke, and obesity. So the deck was kind of stacked against me. And I have no doubt that if I hadn't found low carb when I did, right now, I'd probably have morbid obesity. I'd probably have PCOS. I might have type 2 diabetes. So um, it was my senior year of college, actually, that I read the Atkins book. That's oh, how really? I got started. My mother got a copy of it at a yard sale. <laughs> and she never read it, but I did. And it was... Um, it was so different, but I said, you know, I've tried so many other things and nothing is working. Like, I, what do I have to lose? I'll try this. And it made sense too. it. Like the way that, that Dr. Atkins wrote it, it made sense to me why this should work. Right. Um, and maybe because I was so young, I wasn't really concerned about, well, it, 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 what about my heart health? What about this? It was like, I just want to lose weight. I'm so desperate. I'll do anything. And of course it worked. And I have no problem admitting it didn't stick the first time. I was maybe too young. I wasn't really ready to make it my life and the way that I was going to eat for the rest of my life. So I stopped and started a number of times, but it was only a few years after that, that I 
stuck with it for the long term. And um, that's how I got into it. And I, I'm a career changer, so so to speak. I, I wasn't always a nutritionist. You know, after being in and out of a lot of jobs that I didn't enjoy and I wasn't fulfilled by, I said, you know, I love low carb. I love learning about it. I love eating this way. I love cooking this way. Like nutritionist is a job. Maybe I, I could do that. I could help other people with this. So um, I went back for formal, you know, education in nutrition. And now here yeah. I am. So that's what's so fascinating, though, is you were low carb first and then went to your formal edu- education about nutrition, which yeah. was probably anti low carb and all count your calories, all low fat. So when you were going through your training, what was that like for you? Was it sort of like, oh, maybe I'm wrong and they're right? Or was it I just need to sort of ignore what they're saying and get through this because I know what works? How, yeah. What was your mindset there? That's a good question. I, I ch- actually chose the program I chose because I knew it wouldn't quite be 100% mainstream. I went to a university that has one of the five accredited naturopathic medical colleges, universities in the U.S., and um it was, I mean, I went to the nutrition school, but just the fact that they had a naturopathic medical presence there told me, you know, maybe they'll be open to something a little different. And um, I think it worked to my advantage. So they were not mainstream. They certainly weren't teaching keto. They weren't teaching low carb. They weren't teaching paleo, but they, the professors were very, very aware that most people were eating too much carbohydrate. Most people were eating um, especially too much refined sugar. Most of them were kind of on board with, yeah, saturated fat probably isn't that bad for you. But for me, I felt like, for me personally anyway, I had an advantage going to school for nutrition after learning a lot about it on my own because I was able to learn the biochem and and the anatomy and physiology in the context of low carb. So we would learn about a certain pathway or a certain system in the body and I would say, oh, that's why low carb does what it does. That's why insulin does this. Um, So it it kind of reinforced what I already knew and that, of course, deepened my understanding. But but what is so funny to me is that I had classmates that were vegetarians and vegans, and we could learn the exact same science and come away with such different interpretations of it. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah, so I think it definitely was to your advantage to have that experience beforehand. You learned so much more and so much deeper. I think so. And I think it's really interesting that you said you can admit it didn't stick the first time, almost like sheepishly, like... You know, you're not perfect. And that's such a big part of your message, right? We're not perfect. We don't have to be perfect. We we start and stop. Um, so I think that experience really helped you now help your clients. So tell us some of the challenges you see when you're getting people started on a low-carb diet. So people out there can sort of say, okay, yeah, I experienced this, and this is, you know, I'm not alone. This is how I can get, o- get over it. What are some of the things that prevent people from sticking with a low carb diet? Oh man, <laughs> where to start? Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the big things is and this is something that I, I should have said earlier, when I was new, very late 90s, early 2000s, there was so much less information about low carb and keto. But because there was less information, there was less misinformation, there was less confusion, there were fewer conflicting messages. I've always said, I don't envy the people that are new now. Because when I started, there were literally two books. There was the Atkins book and there was Protein Power by you know, Mike and Mary Danny. There, there might have been Schwarzbein Principle, there were some you know, smaller, lesser known books. There was one forum, when I was new to this, Facebook did not exist, Reddit, Twitter, Instagram did not exist. So there was none of this. You just read the Atkins book, you followed the plan as written and it was great. Uh, Maybe you had to tweak it a little bit for yourself, you know, for individuals, but that was a really good starting point for most people. Um, One of the biggest challenges I see now with people is that they are so overwhelmed. 
not just by conflicting messages, but by information in general. Well, what about fasting and MCT oil and exogenous ketones and do I have to do this and what about... Let's just start with keeping the carbs really, really low. Let's do that first. You know, it's, they're so overwhelmed and you know, I don't know, somebody must be making money off of trying to make it complicated, trying yeah. to make you need, you need products, you need to weigh and measure everything you need to track. You know, how is it that, you know, Atkins wrote his first book over 40 years ago before the internet even existed and people did fine. They didn't have to track, they didn't have to have an app to tell them when to eat right. or when to stop eating or how much <laughs> to eat. Um, they weren't testing ketones, they weren't yeah, charting everything they that's, ate. That's they one of the bigger things I see now. And then, um, you know, there, there's just the, the typical stuff that it's hard to change your diet, especially yeah. we live in such a carb-centric culture. Carbs are everywhere and they're cheap. You know, like I, I, I just flew here to Salt Lake City and you can have keto options at the airport. They sell cheese, they sell hard boiled eggs, they sell beef jerky. It's 10 times as expensive as the cookies and donuts, sure. which aren't cheap at the airport to begin with. But um, part of it, you know, a lot of it's the psychology. Well, I travel, so keto's hard for me, or, you know, my life is this, so keto's hard. And keto's not hard at all in any of those situations. I think people just need a little bit of education as to how to do it. It's really easy when you know what to do. It might mean cooking in advance and taking food with you, um, knowing what to order in a restaurant if you're on the road. It's very simple. It's just so different from what people are used to. Right. And that's your series that you're doing, Keto Without the Crazy. I love that name. I love that name because people can get a little crazy. And yes, there's a place for tracking your macros and tracking everything you eat. And yes, there's a place for checking your ketones, but then there's also a place of saying, let's make this more simplistic. So how, what are some other tips you use to help people just make this simpler make it? Make yeah. It yeah. I don't want to totally bad mouth the tracking because there is a place for that. You know, yeah. especially if you think you're doing everything right and you're not getting the results you want, maybe you're not quite where you thought you were, you know, star chat, maybe you're eating a hundred more grams of carbs than you thought or whatever. Um, so those things can be helpful, but when people are brand new, I think it's, um, it can be, prohibitively complicated. Right. So, um, you know, in terms of keeping it simple, I really try to just remind people that the single most important and most powerful, most effective aspect of this way of eating is controlling the carbs because of controlling insulin. Um, everything else is kind of not secondary in that it doesn't matter, but the, what gets you the biggest bang for your buck really is keeping the carbs low. Over time, once you've adjusted to fat burning, then maybe you want to look at the sources of your fat, whether it's you know animal fat and saturated fat versus the vegetable and seed oils, um, figuring out maybe you have a sensitivity to dairy or something else that you didn't realize, and maybe that's affecting you in some way. Um, but keeping it simple is really just about the total carbs that you're eating. And, you know, unfortunately for a lot of people, that means, you know, if you're really having a hard time with fat loss, and of course not everybody uses keto for fat loss. I mean, we use this for so many other applications, but a lot of the really delicious sort of treats are kind of off limits. Um, not that they can't work, but some people get into trouble with that. And I think keeping it simple is meat and vegetables, meat, vegetables, maybe some nuts, maybe some cheese, but all this other... You know, I look at these keto cookbooks and, and they're delicious and I, we're so lucky to have these creative food bloggers, but I think some people can get into trouble with the, the keto muffins and keto brownies and it's... Yes, let's talk about that. I mean, there's so many keto products on the market now, keto cookies and, and trying to replace the things that we had to quote unquote give up. 
right. and the fat bombs and the bulletproof coffees and the you know the the des- keto desserts and um, when someone gets started, sort of that's what they're looking for. They want to replace all these things and. I don't know. Sometimes it seems like that's more dangerous than helpful. And it sounds like you, you might agree with that in many situations. Yeah, I think for some people, it, it's, it's a really good bridge. It's a really good way to get you over the hump, you know, get, get yourself adjusted. But I also think in some people, it perpetuates the desire for something sweet, even if it's fake sweet or, you know, with sugar alcohols. And I'm not against these products. I, I think they, they really do have a place. If, if having a keto cookie or a keto brownie is, is going to mean the difference between someone sticking to keto in general versus not, then have it. By all means, do it. Yeah. But I also think, you know, something that we don't talk about enough in this community is food addiction and binge eating and really serious psychological and physical problems with food that people have. And I think it doesn't really do you any good to replace a sugar binge addiction with an erythritol binge addiction or, you know, for a lot of people, going keto reverses that. They find the sugar cravings are gone, the desire to binge is gone um, because keto just regulates appetite so well. And and there's there's been people who say, for the first time in my life, I'm not hungry. Mm-hmm. For the first time in my life, I can go from one meal to the next without fantasizing about food or what my next meal is going to be. Uh, but that doesn't happen for everybody. And I think these sorts of products feed into that for some people. Like I right. think really you just have to know how you're wired because some people can do fine with them and some some cannot. Right. Right. And that's the common phrase we hear in the low carb world. Just eat when you're hungry and stop when you're not. And for a lot of people that works, but I can, you can imagine for the people who that doesn't work for, you sort of feel like you're almost being ostracized or like it's, you're not doing it right or something's wrong. But like you said, food addiction doesn't automatically go away in everybody. So some people can't adhere to the eat when you're hungry principle and stop when you're not, can they? I, I think it's so easy to say that and it's so difficult to do. Yeah. Oh, just eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm satisfied. Oh, okay. <laughs> there's there's a comedian, I won't say his name because he's a little controversial, but he said something to the effect of, my meal isn't over when I'm full. My meal isn't over until I hate myself. <laughs> and it's so many of us, right? We don't stop eating until like physical pain is the right. sign for us to stop. Oh, I guess I'm stuffed now. Right. Um, so it's very difficult. And people should just know if you're out there listening to this and you are struggling with this, you're not the only one. We don't talk about it a lot, but you are not alone. And one thing I totally forgot to say that I should have with keeping it simple um, is the math. I try, just kind of going back to another topic. Sorry, I I try to get people away from the math. You'd be amazed, or maybe not, I don't know, but how many emails I get with people saying, I'm having trouble hitting my fat macro, or what should my macros be? I don't think in the Atkins book, I don't think the word macro appears at all in that book. I could be wrong. I haven't read it in a few years, but... um, you know, people think they have to add fat to to things in order to achieve some ratio that's going to magically help the weight fall off or get rid of their migraines or bring their blood sugar down. Um, they're, you know, afraid of protein. They don't, so they only eat a certain amount and then they eat more fat to make up for that because they're still hungry. Um, they're, and I, the human body is not a calculator. You know, it doesn't, it would be so easy if it was, but the, the human body doesn't account. It's not binary like ones and zeros like that. Um, so I, I try to get people away from the math and thinking more about eating with controlling insulin in mind. Mm-hmm. It's not really about the numbers and the ratios and the percentages. It's about keeping insulin low as much of the time as you can. And that starts with lowering the carbs 
and also maybe spacing out when you're eating. So do you also try and talk about time-restricted eating and not having six meals a day or trying to get 12 to 18 hours or whatever the case may be between your meals? Or do you find that complicates things too sometimes? It, um, when people are brand new, I don't really like to talk about, you know, to, I, I don't like the phrase intermittent fasting because to me, if you're eating even one meal a day, let alone two, that's not fasting. So I like, I prefer time-restricted eating or whatever, time-restricted feeding. So um, intermittent fasting is faster to say, but um, I don't really talk to them much about that at first. At first, I don't want them to count anything. I don't want them to think about anything except keeping carbs really low. And even then, they can have as much fat as they want, as much anything as they want, as long as it's a keto-friendly type food. Over time, I think in a lot of people, skipping meals happens naturally because most of us find that you're just not as hungry um, and you can easily go without a meal or even two meals. Um, I don't think we really should focus so much on a, a number of hours, like, oh, it's not 8 o'clock yet, I'm not allowed to eat. If you're hungry, eat. But if you're just craving sugar, well, you're just craving sugar. Maybe tough that out until you're hungry enough for a real meal. But I do. I, I think meal frequency definitely has a role. Even on, on, a, on a ketogenic or low-carb diet, what's going to get you the, the biggest bang for your buck is just the very low-carb intake. But if you're someone who is exquisitely sensitive to any food and your insulin's going to rise a little bit because protein affects insulin, it doesn't spike it like like carbs do, but it affects it a little bit. And so even if you're eating low carb foods, if you're eating them, you know, six, eight times a day and doing this to insulin all day long, right. that's still kind of a problem. Um, and I think it's, I hate to be wishy-washy, but people really differ. There are some people who seem to do better with snacking. Lit, you know, one ounce of nuts here and there, maybe a little piece of cheese later, then a meal. Um, some people don't. So I think some people... I think there's definitely a place for the time-restricted eating, but I also don't want people to think they're doing it wrong if they don't fast. Good point, yeah. And you brought up something very important there. Of, are you hungry or are you craving sugar, right? And for most people getting started, they can't tell the difference and because you've never most people haven't really tried to tell the difference. Right? You have a craving, whether it's hungry, whether it's sugar, whether it's snacking, whatever. You just snack. Now when you're changing, part of it has to be becoming more in tune with your body, which I would guess is difficult for a lot of people in the beginning because they've never really thought of it before. Yeah, no, that's a good point. For, for me, the way I determine for myself, am I hungry or am I just snacky or I don't just want sugar, yeah. is I ask myself, am I hungry enough for a pork chop? Am I hungry enough for steak and asparagus? If right. the answer is yes, I'm hungry. If the answer is no, I don't want a pork chop and broccoli, but I'd kill for a donut, <laughs> then I have my answer. Right. Um, and, and often too, sometimes if I feel a little snacky, I, I say to myself, and so the beauty of low carb, from, again, for most people, the magic doesn't seem to happen for everybody, but for most people, when you start to get a little hungry, you can wait. I'll say, you know, I'm hungry, but I could wait another hour if I had to. Like, I don't have to quell that hunger right now. So I tell myself, wait, wait another hour, and then, or, or wait until you're hungry enough for a meal. Instead okay. of having that little snack in that moment, wait until you're truly hungry and you can have a full piece of fat and protein and vegetables or whatever. Um, but I, you're right. It's, it's so hard. We're not used to we're not used to, we live in a snacking culture. You know, I used to work in a, in a busy office where there was, you know, everyone had a candy dish on their desk right. and you go to the shoe store and you can buy candy at the checkout. You go to the electronics store and there's candy. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. So it's, um, it's hard not to snack sometimes, but that, that hunger, it's, 
it is it's hard. It's hard yeah. to tell when you're really That's hungry. That's a great or not. paradigm though, because even even with keto, even with low carb, you know, snacking on nuts, snacking on macadamia nuts, snacking on maybe uh, some nut butter or something. If you're not hungry enough for a meal, it's probably more of a psychological need than a physical need. And yeah. that's where, I mean, it's not all about the food. It's a lot about the brain. It's a lot about understanding your body and working through these things. Yeah. yeah. Now, you've mentioned insulin a few times, um, which is obviously a very important hormone in our body, and you have a nine-part series on insulin. So you've done some deep dives on insulin. What are some of the, th well, so for basics, you know, insulin obviously regulates our blood sugar. The higher our blood sugar goes, the more car carbs we ingest, the more our pancreas secretes insulin to regulate the blood sugar. Insulin is also said to uh, restrict breaking down our fat stores. Um, so we need low insulin to be able to mobilize our fat stores. So those are sort of like the basics of insulin in terms of eating and low carb. What are some of the surprising things or maybe the contrary things that you've learned about insulin that you included in this nine part series that you think is helpful for people? To yeah. Know? Oh man, where to start? Because <laughs> I think insulin, there's so much focus on blood glucose, at least in the mainstream medical world, mainstream nutrition world, so much focus on the blood sugar. And we're missing the boat by not realizing that quite literally millions of people have a totally normal fasting glucose and a totally normal A1C, but those things are only normal because they're being kept in check by sky high insulin. And there's a lot of medical issues that are driven by the chronically high insulin regardless of the level of the blood sugar. So, you know, Type 2 diabetes is only diagnosed once your blood sugar is elevated, but the, the insulin in many cases is elevated for years before the blood sugar starts to rise to that level. But, you know, I'm giving my talk about Alzheimer's later. Alzheimer's is a disease that's linked to this chronic hyperinsulinemia. Hypertension in most people has very little to nothing to do with the amount of salt they're consuming and everything to do with insulin. Um, gout is, you know, not really about the red meat. It's really more about the insulin and the fructose. Um, Cancer is very controversial, but you know, insulin is, in, in the learning that I've done, what strikes me the most about insulin is that regulating blood sugar to me at this point is the least important, least critical thing insulin does because the body has a lot of different ways to regulate blood sugar, even without insulin. I mean, I, I know type one diabetes is like a serious situation that I, we're not gonna get into right now, but even without insulin, the body has other mechanisms to deal with blood sugar in various ways. Insulin is more like a storage hormone. Insulin tells your body the times are good. Times are good, we better store a lot of this energy. Times are good, we can grow now. Right. We can, it's a growth promoter, right? It's, um, it, it's helpful for building muscle mass. It's not, um, you don't need a ton of it, like the bodybuilders actually inject insulin. I can't even imagine doing yeah, that. It's but, crazy. Um, you know, sort of aberrant, unchecked growth, tissue growth is tied to chronically high insulin, whether that's skin tags, like we're finding out now, the growth of fat tissue. I had a doctor friend who said, uh, insulin is like miracle grow for your fat cells. Uh -huh. um, and even, you know, poly PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, well, what makes cysts grow? The insulin, benign prostate hypertrophy, the enlarged prostate gland, all of this is tied to insulin. Huh. Um, and, and with regard to cancer, you know, 
there, we don't know what causes cancer. There's a million different things that are potentially carcinogenic, but what we do, and I, I would not even say that chronically high insulin or blood glucose causes cancer, but what the research seems to indicate is that those things, the chronically high blood glucose and insulin, sort of roll out the red carpet for faster and quicker growth. Right, you to know, provide it, a better environment yeah, for growth. It yeah, it stimulates the, when there's a cancer already there, chronically high insulin and glucose, give it the stimulus and the fuel to grow and spread. Right. Uh, yeah, so so many different functions besides just blood glucose. Now, could there be a problem with having too low of insulin for too long of a period of time, do you think? Yeah, I, I kind of do. And that yeah. might be a little controversial. Um, but the dose isn't the poison. Uh, the, the poison is in the dose, right? right? Just like they say, of like too much, too much oxygen can kill you. Too much water too can much kill water. you. Too much anything mm -hmm. can kill you. We don't want no insulin. What we don't want is high insulin all the time. Yeah. Um, there may be benefits to punctuated elevations in insulin every now and then, whether that's somebody who carb cycles, maybe they introduce periodic carb feedings or not everybody needs to live in super duper ketosis. You know, some people can be on what I would call more of a low carb diet where your insulin is not going to be on the floor the whole time, but it's not going to be through the roof either. Right. Um, and Especially I think for like teenagers or athletes or people trying to build muscle mass, with right. growth spurts, those right. types of things. Yeah. And even, even the, the, the punct, those punctuated insulin bursts, that's not the problem. The problem is like when, when we have high insulin all the time and our bodies never get into that sort of fat burning, low inflammation state. Um, so I, I couldn't tell you what necessarily the risks are of having too, you know, type one diabetes aside, like what the risks are of too little insulin, but I don't, I don't think I'm not afraid of insulin. I'm afraid of chronically high insulin. Makes sense. Yeah, Makes just, sense. just like cortisol. We, all, we need cortisol to live too. You don't want cortisol high all the time. Right, great analogy. So then there's this term insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is a term we hear all the time. And sometimes not differentiated from hyperinsulinemia, right? So insulin resistance just means our cells may, aren't listening to the insulin as well. Whereas hyperinsulinemia means the insulin levels are high. You seem to, to want to differentiate between those two a lot and say insulin resistance isn't as useful of a term as we use. So help us kind of understand the difference there. Yeah, I, um, it's, it's okay to use the phrase just because that's what everybody uses and that's, that's what we know. But because I think most people do use them interchangeably. So when we say insulin resistance, we're, we kind of know that we're talking about chronically high insulin. Um, for me though, Hyperinsulinemia or chronic hyperinsulinemia, the definition is built into the very phrase. Chronic means all the time or often a hyper high insulin, insulinemia in the blood. Your blood insulin levels are too high too often. What does insulin resistance mean? Because I, insulin resistance to me implies the cells are resistant, so they're not listening to insulin. They are not responding the normal way they would to the signal of insulin. But and, and I, I could be wrong, I'm willing to be wrong about this. My, my thought process is that if the cells were resistant, you wouldn't have hypertension because your kidneys wouldn't be retaining sodium. You wouldn't have gout because your body wouldn't be retaining uric acid. You would be losing weight because your body wouldn't be, insulin wouldn't be giving your adipose tissue the signal to store and hold on. Um, so, and, but I, I also know that supposedly anyway, different tissues can exhibit different levels of resistance to insulin. So right. maybe it's like, well, my fat tissue sure is still sensitive, but but maybe my pancreas isn't or my liver isn't. But yeah, that insulin resistance, my 
are the cells resistant to insulin or are they just full? Because if you look at, it's, I don't know, we don't really have time to get into the whole personal fat threshold concept, but there's a, a, a theory where various cells are so full of fat already, whether it's your fat tissue or your muscles or even cells in the liver and pancreas, they're so engorged with fat already that they physically can't respond to insulin in the, in the right way because the, the insulin receptor and even the glucose transporters literally can't move through the cell because it's so full of fat. So they can't go to the cell membrane properly. They can't receive insulin properly. Um, but so is the cell resistant or is it just full? It's, just full. it's not broken. It's just, yeah. you know, if you, I think Jason Fung had an, an analogy where you're stuffing a suitcase, getting ready to go on a trip. Well, at some point that suitcase is full and it's overstuffed and you can barely buckle it, right? Oh, you got to like jump on it, try to close it. There's it's nothing not wrong with the suitcase. Resistance. The suitcase isn't <laughs> broken. It's just stuffed. It can't, it can't, the capacity is full. Yeah. So, but whatever that process is, that drives the hyperinsulinemia. So it's the hyperinsulinemia that then causes the problems with the insulin resistance or the full cell being the instigating factor, basically. That's what I think. I think yeah. there's some people that disagree, or maybe it's not even 100% settled whether it's the chronically high insulin that causes the resistance or cells become resistant, thus forcing you to secrete more insulin. Yeah, but the treatment remains the same. Exactly, that's the beauty of it. Yeah. Honestly, it's great to try to figure out the mechanisms, but th we don't need to know the mechanism. We don't need to know, even, I mean, Dr. Atkins wasn't the first person to, to prescribe low carb diets for weight loss. People were doing this back in the 50s and 60s and the 1800s, you know, Ban Banting's letter on corpulence. Right. Like we didn't have to know any of this to know that getting rid of starch helped a lot of people lose weight. Isn't that fascinating? And now the more we know, the more science we have, the more confusing it's become. It was so much simpler back then without knowing the science. And and I'm a science guy. I like knowing the science, but it can be so confusing because you have a, a rat study where you overfeed rats with fat and they develop diabetes. And then all of a sudden you see these headlines that fat causes diabetes. And it's like, oh my God, wait, what does this mean? And so the more we try to learn about mechanisms, sometimes the more confusing it gets. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, yeah. <laughs> and so we talk a lot about weight loss. Um, and, but also mental health is a big thing. And you've been very vocal about low carb and keto and, and mental health. So that, that's something that you've had some experience with and something that you experience with your clients. Um, I guess, did it surprise you that there was such a, a strong connection there? And is it something that you find in a lot of people? Yeah, it, it doesn't surprise me, but I wish more people knew. Yeah. And I think keto is not 100% slam dunk for mental health. You know, some things are... are either not gonna get better or only improve to a certain extent, but it's amazing how many people do improve so much on keto, whether it's depression or anxiety or bipolar, um, schizophrenia, there's actually published literature on a lot of this. Yeah. Um, depression, there's not as much on depression, there's a lot on bipolar, anxiety, and schizophrenia, but it, it makes total sense to me because a lot of these things may have something to do with um, depressed brain glucose metabolism or just depressed brain energy metabolism in general. And so when you're getting ketones, all of a sudden the brain kind of comes back to life. And it's, I mean, that's not the only mechanism. There's a, I, I've given a talk where there's at least five or six different mechanisms where a ketogenic diet can help. But I think it's, um, 
especially important to get this information out to the psychiatry community and the psychology community because so many of the pharmaceutical drugs available either don't work or they right. work, but they come with such you know horrible side effects. Some people would rather be sick than, than deal with the side effects, or you could just change your food, right? You know, or or change the food and maybe reduce your medication. You know, maybe you won't be able to stop it completely, but um, it's it's astounding to me that you know I, I actually heard Jeff Volek say the other day it's such a great line because when you start to say well keto we know it's a slam dunk for epilepsy we know it's a slam dunk for type 2 diabetes fat loss you know it seems to be really good for hypertension metabolic syndrome in general um, and now we're learning about migraines and um, like I said anxiety all this stuff you start to sound like a snake oil salesman. Whatever thing you, oh, have you tried keto? You yeah. have this weird thing. And even like glycogen storage diseases, all these weird, rare conditions. Um, people with Ehlers-Danlos have been getting better with keto, like it's a collagen disease. All this stuff, you really start to sound like a kook. Like, oh, you have this weird thing, try keto. Try keto. And Jeff Folick said, you know, because when, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Keto is a really big hammer, and there's a lot of little nails out there. Like, that's great. Yeah. You know? Well, and it just shows how maybe some of it has to do with undoing all the damage we've done with the carbohydrates that maybe it's not the ketones. Maybe it's just getting rid of the junk we've been doing, or maybe it is something that's Yeah, I think, I think a lot of what we consider anxiety or panic attacks or rage, especially road rage, is hypoglycemia. Yeah. Because I've felt it. We've probably all felt it. Right. I've been, even since going keto, every now and then you still have that moment, like, oh, in the car. <laughs> um, but I think that's just the wild ups and downs in blood sugar. And when you even that out, guess what? The mood stabilized yeah. too. Um, you know, that kind of irritability goes away. Not all Always, you'll still be in a situation every now and then where it's you know you get heated sure, but sure. Um, yeah. even even the depression you know there's there's some evidence that the different types of fats can affect the brain and, and moods and stuff especially omega-3s so it's I think there's a lot we don't know but again the beauty is we don't have to have all the answers to know that this we don't have to know why it works to know that it works and right. it's worth trying it's worth trying you know and you, you mentioned the problem with antidepressants you know there was this um, I forget the details but this journalist who traveled the world for a couple of years researching depression and antidepressants in uh, different communities and different cultures. And he went to one where they said, yeah, you know, we gave someone an antidepressant and it, it you know, it helped them. And he said, oh, well, what was the drug? Oh, no, it, it wasn't a drug. You know, we gave him like a community connection. That's what they termed <laughs> their antidepressant wow. in their language. Or one, one person, they gave him a cow. And he was able to, to start a business, you know, start having income through the cow. And that was his antidepressant because it made him feel better. So it, it's so funny to think of how we think about, oh, you're depressed. It's a chemical disorder. Here's your drug. Yeah. As opposed to thinking more about your lifestyle, your community, your sleep, and of course your nutrition and yeah. how you're fueling your brain. So I, think, I think all of that feeds into it. But my, my own personal experience, I think depression is sometimes situational, sometimes it's biochemical, sometimes it's both. Yeah. You know, situational meaning if you are trapped in a job you don't like, maybe you're in a loveless marriage or you're even living in a town you don't like, you just don't feel fulfilled by your life or even, you know, the, the grief, death of a loved one, a divorce, something. And then there's biochemical where you look at your life on paper and say, everything's great. What am I so unhappy about? You know what? Um, and that was kind of, I, I had a little bit of both, but I also had a very bad thyroid problem. Mm. And as soon as I got on thyroid medication, my depression got about 90% better. It's not gone, but it's so much better. And I knew it was thyroid related. It was just a, a sort of 
tightrope walk dance to figure out the type of medication I needed and the dose that would make me feel better. Um, and I, I see that all the time in clients, unrecognized, either unrecognized hypothyroidism or they know they have it and they're on medication, but it's not the correct type or dose because they still feel terrible. Yeah. All their same signs and symptoms are there. And, you know, unfortunately, I'm not a physician. All I can do is educate them and recommend, hey, talk to your doctor about this. I can't prescribe the medication. I can't change the medication, but I can give them information. Hey, this is why you still feel lousy. Yeah. You know? It's amazing how controversial thyroid is because TSH is the common test, the thyroid stimulating yeah. hormone. And there's a, a wide range, you know, like in the one to four range. And if you're in that range, frequently people won't test anymore. But testing things like free T4 and free T3 can can add extra information. But even then, it's still controversial in terms of what is true, you know, hypothyroidism. And there's subclinical hypothyroidism. Um, and, you know, I have a, I have a friend who uh, runs this website, Hormones Demystify, and he is he is big on thyroid and and um, sort of the trouble we can get into by digging deeper and assigning problems to thyroid that aren't. But there's definitely a balance there where uh, we're, I think we're missing a lot. I'm sure there's a lot of overtreatment, but we're also missing a lot. But one question is, how does keto affect thyroid? Because that's something that a lot of people talk about and that there's yeah, some miscirculating as that's well. That's a great question because it's, it is controversial. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> we could have a whole hour podcast on <laughs> thyroid stuff alone, but I'll, I'll skip some of what, what you said before and we'll just go, go with this. Um, some, some people who have hypothyroidism, and it seems to be specifically more often the Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune thyroid condition, that seems to get better for a lot of people on keto. They go keto and they're able to either reduce or stop their meds. They just get a lot better. Not everyone does. I, I don't. I mean, I, I still need, well, I don't have Hashis, but I still need my medication. Um, in some people, not everyone, but some, it seems to be that keto lowers T3, and T3 is the most active most potent thyroid hormone. There's a lot of different thyroid hormones. T3 is kind of the most powerful one. The thing is though, we don't know if this is good, bad, or indifferent. Um, you know, I, Stephen Finney has sort of hypothesized that keto makes the body so much more metabolically efficient that you need less T3. Your body's more sensitive to kind of like insulin. Mm -hmm. When you're more sensitive to it, you don't need as much to generate the same effect. So, and I, I don't know if that's not proven. I think that's a hypothesis, yeah. but... Same hypothesis for testosterone as well. Yeah. yeah. And my, my thinking is, I don't really care what the T3 is as long as somebody feels well. If you're asymptomatic, if your T3 has gone down, but you feel great, you still have energy, you're losing weight, or you're maintaining a weight you're happy with, yeah. does it matter? Um, so I think you can keep an eye on it, but if you feel okay, I don't think it really matters. And one thing though... There's a lot of people have a, a thyroid decrease after losing a substantial amount of weight, especially if they've done it through dramatic calorie restriction. Mm -hmm. And that's not unique to keto, though. That'll happen on any diet where you lose a lot of weight, especially if it's through a big caloric restriction. Um, where I see some people getting into trouble on keto with this situation, and it's usually women, almost always women, oh, yeah. is I honestly think there are some people that are over-exercising and under-eating, and that's the problem. Keto's not the problem. The problem is they are inadvertently starving themselves and taxing their bodies way too much, 
And it's not really keto, it's the fact that they simply weren't eating enough. And mm -hmm. some of those people really do better increasing their starch, and that's fine, because most of those people are young and lean and already fit and probably didn't need strict keto in the first place. You'll, right. you'll never really hear this from, from a woman who started at 350 pounds. This tends to happen to people that are already near their goal weight. Um, and if they're exercising that much, they have no problems burning the carbs for right. fuel efficiently and right. still also being able to burn yeah. fat for fuel. So I think they just need more food, whether yeah. it's more carbs or... and Because the thing is, a young woman like that, culturally, she's just not going to sit down to a 16-ounce steak. She's not... A man will do it. That's why we don't hear these problems <laughs> in men. A, a, a young girl is just not going to do that. Yeah. And so they might increase their calories like if it's an, a total energy issue they might be more comfortable psychologically getting those calories from sweet potatoes or beans i'm not saying that's the best way to do it right. but that's effective because that's what they'll eat more so than just having more food that's fatty or like a fatty salami or they're just right. not going to eat that such way. a good point just the the cultural uh, paradigms i mean you go online and look up what keto is and you see you know bacon this and big steaks and you're exactly right a 16 year old girl is going to look at that and say what are you kidding me i'm not exactly. eating that. that's yeah. crazy yeah. yeah so you have to meet them where they are and work with them now right. good point well so we went from the brain to the thyroid i want to go back to the brain because obviously with your book um the alzheimer's antidote really put you on the map as as an expert on alzheimer's disease and nutrition and this concept of type 3 diabetes and when I was in med school, Alzheimer's was all about the plaques and the, the tangles, and once you had it, you had it. There was nothing you could do to prevent it, so you didn't even want to know if you were at risk for it, really, because there was nothing you can do. Now that paradigm is changing. Um, so tell us you know, a little bit about how that paradigm's changed and, and um, what you think the main interventions are. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, it, it is still about the plaques and tangles, at least in the mainstream Alzheimer's and neurology world. It's changing very, very slowly. Yeah. There is more research coming out saying, look, this, this amyloid thing is wrong because they, there's been at least four pharmaceutical drug failures now of anti-amyloid drugs that have had zero, they've either had no impact on the disease or they've actually made it worse. Yeah, um, and they've been billion-dollar drug yeah, uh, yeah. One of the drug companies, I forget which one, even like they're waving the white flag. They've given up. They're not yeah. even going to try anymore. And I think um, this type 3 diabetes phrase is so telling. And, and it's all over the medical literature. And, and unfortunately, the people who need this information the most are not getting it. The, the patients and their loved ones and caregivers are never hearing that Alzheimer's is a brain fuel problem. It's, it's a shortage of energy in the brain. So these neurons are atrophying, they're withering, they're shrinking. Um, but I think it's still very, I wouldn't even say controversial. It's not even known at all, I think, in, in, the, in the conventional neurology world that we know as much about this as we do or that there are these potential solutions. And I, I'm so careful. I was an English major in, in undergrad. I'm so careful with the way I say and write things. I use the word potential because yeah. we don't know for sure that you can prevent Alzheimer's or that you can reverse. Well, there are some small-scale studies showing that you can reverse it, at least in its early stages. You know, right. someone who's very, very severely afflicted, is, it's, it's going to be a lot harder to have an impact in them. But I think it is reversible the earlier you catch it and the more mild it is. And, and I, th I think we can prevent it, but I, I can't say for sure. I wish I could. Yeah. Now, the concept, though, is there's plenty of glucose in the system. The brain has all the glucose it needs. It just can't use it efficiently. So sort of like an insulin resistance of the brain, in a way, 
But again, there's that term. So is there an easier way to describe it for people to understand the mechanism a little bit? Yeah, so you know that phrase, water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink? (laughs) That's kind of how this is. You're exactly right. There's more than enough glucose in the body. Why isn't the brain using it? And at first it is. Um, You know, there's a researcher, Stephen Cunane, whose work is really phenomenal in this area of ketones for the brain. And, you know, he was saying, is, is the problem one of supply or demand? Is that there's not enough glucose getting to the brain? Is the problem with the supply or is the brain not using it? Is it the demand? And it's both, but at first it's, it's the demand because the brain, for whatever reason, becomes unable to metabolize the glucose. There's plenty of glucose getting into the brain. The brain's just not using it. Then it becomes a supply problem because if the brain's not using it, the body stops sending it. Like, well, if you're not going to use it, I won't even give you any. So at in the later stages, the brain doesn't even really take the glucose mm. up in the first place. Um, and I think, you know, in, in my talk, I sort of speculate some of the reasons why I think this is happening. It could be just like the rest of the body, where the glucose is just not going to get used properly. It's just going to linger in the bloodstream. Maybe it lingers in the, the brain inter- interstitial space and doesn't actually get into the cells. I think part of it, too, is, you know, not, not to get too geeky, but the metabolism of glucose, the actual burning of glucose in mitochondria is is more damaging than burning fats, more damaging than burning ketones. It's like the single most damaging thing in the body is the running of the electron transport chain. You generate these free radicals, blah, blah, blah. And because glucose is so much more damaging than those other fuels, and most of us have been burning almost nothing but glucose for our whole life, I mean, not nothing, but you know, predominantly glucose for yeah. most of our lives, these cells are already so highly damaged, and the brain doesn't have the same repair capacity that, that a lot of the rest of the body has. And I think if, if I anthropomorphize and, and try to put human ideas into these neurons, they're saying, I'm already, I'm already so damaged, I'm already so debilitated from all these years of glucose toxicity that I'm not going to let you give me any more glucose. I'm going to shut the spigot off. I'm not going to take any up. I'm not going to metabolize it. I'm going to defend myself by just not even taking the glucose in. Mm. And, and we see that because the glucose is actually shunted toward other pathways that make protective you know, protective compounds and regenerative compounds. Um, and this would be no problem if there was an alternative fuel source coming in. Uh. If you can't use glucose, but you have, I don't know, like this crazy thing called ketones maybe, <laughs> instead, it's not as bad a problem. You might still have some fuel gap there, but not as much because you have some fuel. But most people are hyperinsulinemic all the time, or even if they're not hyperinsulinemic, they're just eating a lot of carbs all the time. They don't have the ketones, so there's no glucose and there's nothing else. So from from a prevention standpoint, then, would you say we still need the ketones or we just need to prevent the the situation in the first place where the glucose is so high and the and the brain becomes uh, resistant to it. Yeah, thank you for asking because this um I I don't think everybody needs a ketogenic diet to potentially prevent Alzheimer's. What we do have to do is eat and live in a way that keeps blood glucose and insulin within a healthy normal range. Some people are gonna need less than 50 grams of carbs or less than 30 grams of carbs to achieve that, some people won't. And I really, you know, if you look around the world, even historically, we have 
billions of people that age gracefully with all their cognitive faculties intact, and they're not on ketogenic diets. Right. It would be stupid for me to say that strawberries cause Alzheimer's disease or parsnips cause all. It's not the carbs per se. It's like all the confounding factors that come together to make this problem. So I think if somebody wants to be in ketosis all the time or be on a low-carb diet all the time as a potential preventive, I think that's great. But I don't think everybody has to. I think, like I said, that the thing is to control insulin and blood glucose. And it's, it's not just... Um, it's not just the glucose. A B12 deficiency alone can cause cognitive impairment, um, choline deficiency, you know, some, some of the fats. Long-term untreated hypothyroidism can cause cognitive impairment. So when I, when I get someone that's coming to me for that reason, it's not just about the insulin. That's a big piece of it. But all this other stuff has to be looked at. And um, so I think you, how do you want to prevent Alzheimer's? kind of the same way you want to prevent all the other stuff we taught, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, keep yourself healthy, stay active, get some fresh air. I wish that we could quantify, like, because everyone, you know, me included and you included, I do believe there's a role for healthy social relationships and getting sunlight. I mean, we're in this gorgeous surroundings here. I know we're like, yeah. people can't see out the window. It's gorgeous <laughs> here in Utah. I've never been here before. Um, for, you know, for sunlight, for love in your life and, and, but I don't know that anyone's able to actually quantify that. Right. What exactly does that do? How much of that do I need? And I, I kind of also hope we don't quantify. That's the kind of thing that shouldn't be quantified. Just go enjoy your life. That's a great know? point, yeah. right? Because then you start counting your macros, And then there's so an speak. app. How yeah. much social connection have I had this week? And like, no, that's, that's not the point. That's not the point, right? Oh, man. How much I... does my husband love me? <laughs> great point. Yeah, and... Um, <laughs> I like that a lot. That's great. Um, but going back real quick to what you said before, it's not the strawberries, it's not the parsnips. So part of it also has to do with where you're starting from. Because if you already have diabetes, if you already have hyperinsulinemia, then yes, that big bowl of fruit, then that big bowl of root vegetables could be contributing to the problem. But it's because your metabolism is already broken at that point, basically. You're already starting from a, a disease standpoint. Whereas if you've reversed that, and you're not starting from that standpoint, then all of a sudden those parsnips and those strawberries aren't going to have the same effect. Exactly. No, I totally yeah. agree. I think the, the type of intervention needed to reverse a disease once it's already in place is not necessarily the one you need to prevent it from happening in the first place. Right. And I, I use the analogy of, of an exterminator. If you have an insect infestation in your home, you call the exterminator, they set off this big toxic bug bomb, problem <laughs> solved. That doesn't mean you needed them to come set that bug bomb off to prevent an infestation. What you could have done is keep food sealed, keep your windows closed, you know, these lower level, safer things that would have prevented the problem from the first place. But no, you're exactly right. Once yeah. you're already in the disease process, desperate times call for desperate measures. Not, not that I call keto a desperate measure, but the, the, the more severe your problem is, the more, you know, strong a, an intervention you need. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Now, can we take a minute to talk about alcohol? You, <laughs> you told me recently sure. about this fascinating study that you read. Um, and I know it's a little off topic of what we've been talking about, but we had an earlier podcast about alcohol and um, how it fits into a, a keto lifestyle or a low-carb lifestyle. Because let's face it, alcohol is very prevalent in our society, and it's a big part of people's social structure um, and part of their life and their enjoyment. And the, sort of the traditional teaching is that it shouldn't fit into a keto lifestyle because it's carbs, because it's sugar, because it can affect your liver, it can affect ketone production. 
um, you read some fascinating study that sort of said to the contrary. So just give us a little snippet about that study. Yeah, this study was a little bit nuts because it was done in, I think it was 1970. So it was before, I assume that's before the IRBs, the review boards. And then yeah. so you could kind of get away with doing some crazy things to people in an experimental setting that would never get approved today. They gave these subjects up to, it was about 46% of their calories from alcohol, from ethanol. And one guy, one subject even had up to 66%. Wow. And the remainder of the calories were either they had a cohort of a lower carb, higher fat, and a cohort of a higher carb, lower fat. And um, in both groups, the alcohol either did nothing to ketones barely or it actually increased them. And it seemed to increase them more in the group that was on the higher fat, lower carb diet. And those people should have had ketones anyway. It's, it's kind of a ketogenic diet they were on anyway, but the alcohol raised the ketones like well above and beyond what would have been just from the diet alone. Um, I don't think that's not necessarily a reason to drink. Um, right. You know, if you're looking for high ketones, increasing your alcohol intake would not be my first recommendation, but I do think alcohol can fit into a ketogenic lifestyle if you do it intelligently um, and you drink the right things. I mean, beer is liquid bread, but there's some dry wines that are very low in carbs. Distilled spirits are zero carb. The problem with alcohol is what we add it to. It's right. the pineapple juice and the orange juice and the cranberry juice. Um, and I think... Alcohol can fit, but it's, you know, it's not a weight loss tool. That's, you know, if, if you're drinking, it's still liquid calories. Even if it's very low carb, it's not calorie free. So it, it can interfere if, if you're really struggling to lose body fat. Um, but there's, you know, there's ways to incorporate it safely. And I, for really for most people, it doesn't lower the ketones. It, um, you know, I think people, people need to be aware, and you, you probably addressed this if you had a show about alcohol. Alcohol hits people a lot harder and faster on keto. So like always yeah. be safe, be responsible. And, and the thing is, I don't, somebody tried to explain the full mechanism to me and it's very complicated. I only understand a little bit about it, but because of the way that alcohol affects the liver and the way that the liver metabolizes alcohol, alcoholics actually sometimes have very, very freakishly low A1Cs. And it's because I, part of it is supposedly alcohol inhibits uh, hepatic glu glucose output, gluconeogenesis, but I think there's other mechanisms involved too. Yeah. But that's, if you want to lower your A1C, again, I would not, uh, alcohol mm -hmm. consumption is not the way that I would recommend you do it. Right. An another example of the science and the mechanisms being interesting, but maybe confusing the issue more than they're actually helping the issue. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. In the beginning, if someone's doing this to lose weight and to get into ketosis and improve their life, alcohol has very little role, if any. But once you've sort of hit that st steady state, once you've had your success and you wanting to, if that's part of your life you want to bring back, it certainly can have a role in the right way. Yeah, yeah, yeah it can fit. And I, one thing though is, is people have to just be careful because alcohol lowers inhibitions. And when you have a drink or two, you might be more inclined to eat something you wouldn't normally right. eat, especially if you're at a party or a restaurant where starches and sugars are literally within arm's reach. If you're drinking at home and that's just not even in your house, you don't have the option to eat it. But that's, it is a slippery slope. Yeah, it's most detrimental effect is probably its effect on the brain and not its right. effect on the body. Right. Yeah. Oh, well. Well, this has been a really interesting tour on a number of different subjects, which you can speak very well on. And, and it's clear you've got a, a vast amount of experience and knowledge and, and can impart that knowledge in a way that's easy to understand. And that's why I love your series, Keto Without the Crazy, to Thank really you. make it uh, simple for people to understand. Thanks. Um, that's, that's my whole goal is to, to uncomplicate it. Yeah. 
So where can people go to learn more about you and hear more of what you have to say? Sure. My website is tuitnutrition.com, T-U-I-T, nutrition.com. And uh, my Twitter handle is the same, tuitnutrition. My book is The Alzheimer's Antidote. They can find that on Amazon. And yeah, I just a couple of months ago started my YouTube channel. They can just look for Tuit Nutrition on YouTube. Great. Yeah. All right, well, I look forward to seeing more information from you. Thanks. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks for joining me. Have a great day.